Welcome to the fund's Title Now pop-up webinar. I'm Melissa Murphy with the fund. And we do these webinars from time to time um, on relevant or developing topics. They're free, so we don't offer CLE because we want them to be as spontaneous and conversational as much as possible rather than instructional. That's why we discourage PowerPoints, because we really want there to be a conversation between the speakers. And we also have a, an ulterior motive, which is to push the audio out to our podcast, which is also called Title Now. You can get the podcast wherever you subscribe to other podcasts. So sign up now. We are going to take questions at the end of our prepared remarks. So if you have a question about any of the information that we talk about, just put something in the chat. And we have uh, John Benson, who is very overqualified to monitor a chat, but he offered to do it, so I took him up on it. And then at the end of our prepare remarks, we'll uh, see what questions you might have. Joining me today is Brian Stringer, Brian is one of our fund underwriting council, and we are here to talk about memorandums of agreement that are popping up in the public records around the state, in fact, around the country. And these agreements create what many people feel are surprising obligations on the part of an owner of property who might become a seller of that property in the future. And some of these obligations may bleed over to the buyer also. So Brian, tell us what these agreements are all about. Well, these agreements, basically what they provide us is in exchange for an upfront payment of money, which can be anywhere from a few hundred dollars to several thousand dollars. The owner obligates themselves to list their home with a specific broker if they decide to sell. It goes on to provide that the owner will commission typically 6% upon the sale. Well, how long do these obligations typically run? Well, that's the thing that makes these a bit unique is a typical listing agreement may last for a few months or up to a year, but we've seen these agreements with terms for as long as 40 years. 40 years. Does it apply only if the owner wants to list the property with a broker? And what I'm getting at is the owner allowed to sell their home on their own, a FISBO? Well, that's a great question. And unlike a typical agreement, the owner can't sell their home on their own. It's a FISBO. These agreements, again, it's going to depend on the individual agreements because there's a few that are out there. But the commission is likely to, even if they sell without the use of any broker at all. And even if the commission is not due for some reason, many of the agreements that we've seen, they're going to have a fee that's triggered by any transfer of the property, even a gift or a conveyance with no consideration. Well, I would I would hope that it only covers a voluntary sale or conveyance, but do the typical agreements that you've seen cover any type of transfer of ownership? I mean, what if the owner dies? Well, yes and no. I mean, that's that's an interesting wrinkle to these agreements as well as is if the owner dies and title transfers to an heir beneficiary, there's no fee due, but only if the heir beneficiary agrees to assume the obligations under the current agreement. So these agreements that you've seen would cover a transfer resulting from death if the heirs don't agree to assume the obligations that would obligate them upon the future sale of the property. That's correct. 
What about other types of involuntary conveyances like a foreclosure or something of that nature? Are those transfers also covered? So they are, and some, some of those are specifically outlined in the agreements. It's say a transfer from foreclosure, voluntary or involuntary transfer, are often listed as what they call the triggering events, which requires a payment, not typically the full 6%, but some other amount that's calculated based upon the value of the property. So it, it sounds as if the exact terms of these agreements are dependent upon the wording of the agreement, which of course is true of any contract. And these vary uh, depending upon who the broker is and, and what iteration of their contract they happen to be using at that time. But what are other types of provisions that you are commonly seeing in these agreements? Is there any way for the owner to opt out of this obligation? There is. Once they've agreed to, to list with the broker, they're subject to these agreements. Most of the agreements have some sort of an early termination or cancellation provision in them. And they usually provide that the owner can opt out by paying an early termination fee, which is typically equal to a certain percent of the fair market value of the property as determined by the broker or the other party to the agreement. So that's the difference is that the broker is, is the one that's going to calculate the early termination fee at the time the owner seeks to terminate. Is there any provision for the owner to challenge or arbitrate or negotiate that value that the broker determines? Have you seen anything like that in these agreements? I haven't. With respect to arbitration, I have seen that there is a requirement to arbitrate disputes under the agreements. But specifically with respect to the calculation of the early termination fee and fair market value, which you would typically see in a contract where each party would say, I think this is a fair market value. Another particular would say, I don't think that's the fair market value. And you have a third arbiter come in and say, this is the fair market value. The ones that I've seen just provide that the broker is going to determine the fair market value. Well, I can see where that would be a, a possible point of contention. But let's move away from the provisions of the agreement and, and talk about what you've seen happen out in the real world. What have you seen happen if the home is sold and the broker that was a party to these agreements is not paid? What's happening? We've seen that. And the odd thing about these is they don't make a demand for payment from the party who entered into the brokerage agreement. They're making demands for payment from the buyer, the subsequent owner, not the seller of the property. And that's the, because there's a agreement. That's right. Well, as I say, on the buyer, how can they leverage the buyer to pay this fee when they weren't even a party to the agreement to start with? Well, as we've seen from analyzing these agreements, the brokers have hired very competent and clever attorneys. The obligations that they've created in these agreements, they, they purport them to be covenant trading with the land. So that's how they get the buyer or any other successor and in interest obligated, is that these obligations attach to the property and they're not independent of the contract. So the obligation to list with this particular broker is an ongoing obligation for every future owner of the property? That's what appears the plain reading of these agreements, is that they are going to be obligating every future owner of the home for up to four decades. Of course, they could expire on their terms with the passage of time, but in the, in the intervening term, they obligate everyone who owns that property. Well, I have read some of these agreements, and the ones that I have read contain language 
to the effect that the broker has a lien against the property if title transfers and they aren't paid their commission. So it's a, a springing lien or a lien that will come into existence. And so is that part of the demand that's made on the buyer, um, you know, something to the effect that foreclosure of that lien will begin if they don't pay this fee? That's exactly what we've seen. So we've seen demands for payment on a subsequent owner, and they're not just a demand for payment. They've, they've been accompanied oftentimes by a draft foreclosure complaint, just so that the owner knows that if they don't fulfill the demand, that the broker is ready, willing, and able to go to court to foreclose their lien interest. Well, this seems to be the real heart of the problem from the fund's perspective. I mean, certainly we want to make members aware of these agreements. They are out there in the practice. But what we are focused on and most concerned about is delivering clear title to our proposed insured. So how are we dealing with a potential assertion of this lien when one of these agreements show up in a title chain? And, and by the way, what exactly shows up in the public records? Good point. What we're seeing in the public record typically, we're not seeing, I, I've not seen the full agreement report, but we're seeing either a memorandum of agreement or a memorandum of interest, which is signed, witnessed, and notarized by the part by the, the owner. So it can be recorded. And it's very similar, similar to what you see with a memorandum of lease. It's just putting the public on notice that these, this agreement exists and here are the basic terms and you need to contact this party in order to proceed with the problem. So are we uh, addressing these things in our commitments? We are. We, we just started, we created a new Schedule B1 requirement. It's going to be included in the commitments on the properties where we find these memorandum of agreement. The clause that we've drafted requires that the agreement be terminated and any lien released. This is a new clause that members likely have not seen yet, but they are, from what we what we have gathered, they're going to begin seeing these quite frequently. So the members should pay really close attention to the commitments when they come in and see what this requirement is called. And you, you mentioned the word, they will start seeing these frequently. I have heard anecdotally, I can't say I've done any kind of independent verification, but I have heard anecdotally that there are thousands of these memorandum of agreements recorded in the public records just in Florida, just in Florida. So it does seem as though this will be something that members will see. So it's gonna be a schedule B1 requirement that they get a termination and release. So how do they go about getting that? Well, as you can imagine, Melissa, there's contact information for the broker in these memorandums of agreement. They've they've made it quite straightforward to obtain a release of the agreement. So what they're going to do, the, the owner, the seller, is going to have to contact the broker and confirm, either confirm the amount for the release or a negotiated release, uh, the payment in exchange for the release and termination. And because these things are so new and we've not seen many of them, the satisfactions and releases, we're requiring that underwriting review any proposed release and termination. So if a member does see this on the Schedule B1, the owner wants to get the release and termination, the member should send it to underwriting so we can review the terms and make sure that it adequately releases the property, not just a lien for the commission, but the covenant running with the land. Yeah, I was going to make that point that our position is that we not only want to 
terminate or release the lien, but we want to terminate the agreement so it's no longer a covenant running with the land. Absolutely, because it's not clear from, from my analysis whether once you list it with the broker and pay the commission that you satisfy the agreement. From the plain terms of the agreement, it's going to continue for every subsequent sale. Got it. So I may have missed this in your comments, but is there a contact information in the agreement so that the member knows where to go to talk, talk about getting this termination and release? So that's a great question. And the, the memorandums of interest that we've seen do have a contact information for the broker because they, they've actually they've made it quite easy to contact them and get the release and they tell you how they're going to give it to you. So these problems are not insurmountable title problems that we're going to see that are going to be you know, completely derail a transaction. They are solvable. There, there's contact information in the memorandum of agreement and there's a mechanism to terminate. So... Um, Brian, if you were going to sum this situation up for a fund member, what points would you make? Well, I would reiterate one of our primary points that we always tell our members, and that's, first of all, review your commitments very carefully to see what are your requirements, what are the exceptions, see if one of these things does, in fact, affect your property. And if you have a commitment that was delivered prior to this webinar or prior to, to the fund, to the your general counsel block, Look at your B2s, because sometimes these these exceptions are showing up on the B2s, and some members were looking at them very similar to a declaration of condominium or CCRs and just keeping on B2 and moving forward because the property was subject to. So if you do have a, a commitment that was delivered some weeks ago, I advise that they look at the B2 exceptions very carefully. Very good point. Very good point. Because we are undertaking to train our examiners on what these agreements are and the requirement that they be treated such that there's a B, B1 uh, requirement, but just to be sure, members ought to also check B2 exceptions. Agreed. Right. And if and there's nothing there at all, do you have any advice for a member? Well, I suggest if the, even there's nothing there, you know, ask your seller, have you signed any sort of a listing agreement? Do you have any outstanding agreements with respect to listing or selling your property? Um, and if there is an agreement of record, Talk to the seller about what needs to be done. Just is explain to them there is a mechanism to release them. There is a way to terminate the covenant running with the land. And there just, just needs to be counsel with the seller and they can satisfy the requirement. The, and if you if the seller is going to satisfy, be sure to get a proper release and termination. And we would advise the member to obtain the release and termination recorded themselves. I would agree with that, particularly if it's a B1 requirement. And it's interesting that you make the comment that you should talk to the seller and explain to them what needs to be done. I agree with that 100% because if in fact the member's been sent a transaction and there's no listing agreement or a broker involved um, or a listing agent involved in the transaction, but you then see one of these agreements shown on your commitment then it may very well be that the seller does not understand clearly or has ignored the, their obligation under this agreement to list with that particular broker. So it would be important for you to reach out to, to the seller and ask them questions and explain to them that this agreement is there and we need to arrange for a release. Very good point. Uh, John Benson, are there any questions in the chat so far? 
Not hearing any, but are you muted, John? I, I just got unmuted by the, the master muting. Um, no, Melissa, there are no questions being asked at this point in time. All right, perfect. Then uh, we will uh, wrap this up here by um, first thanking Brian for his time and energy in putting together all this information. But I also want to offer some comments. These agreements are new and to some people really a bit shocking. And I want to be clear that we are not expressing any opinion on their legality or their fairness or the business practices of any of the companies involved in this. The sole purpose of the webinar today is to make fund members aware that these agreements exist, explain to them how they affect title and, and how you can address the issue in connection with your particular closing. So Brian and I hope that this has been useful information to you. And this is a, a perfect example of what we're trying to do with these pop-up webinars, just sort of in and out, uh, quick information, new uh, issues out there for you to deal with. So thank you so much for attending. And don't forget, we're going to push this audio out to our podcast, which is also called Title Now. And keep an eye out for future podcasts that we are putting together because we're trying to sort of reinvigorate these things and offer them a bit more regularly. And as always, thank you for your support of the fund. Thank you, everyone.